you please to bow as we come to the scripture and to bow with me and uh, let's seek the Lord. Father in heaven, I pray uh, that you would be with us. Uh, It certainly is true. It seems to us that our fingers are nimble enough to open the pages of this book, but please don't allow that to make us overconfident uh, to think that uh, in our opening that uh, we have the wherewithal spiritually, even intellectually, to, to handle what's here. So I pray that you would help us overcome any spiritual resistance we may have uh, to really hearing from you. Um, God, work in us. Gives a great sense of your presence in this word. That we might hear it and believe it and walk with Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 28, please. Acts chapter 28. Uh, I want to read just the first... Uh, six verses, really. Acts 28, 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. After we were brought safely through, you remember that Paul and his companions, including Luke, that's why the we is there, Uh, had been shipwrecked, and uh, it was a horrible two-week hurricane, really, Uh, and they found themselves sailing through it, which is not a good thing to do, obviously. Uh, Their ship was destroyed, uh, hit a reef and was destroyed, but uh, um, you remember that all the people on the boat were saved just as God had promised, 276 persons, so that's what that's about. So we read, after we were brought safely through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea, Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, interesting to me, having been doing this sort of work a long time, I looked in my axe file... Uh, and uh, from other times that I had preached and taught through the book of Acts and so forth over the years, and I found nothing on this passage. I found that I had skipped it every single time that I had uh, I'd worked through the book of Acts. And uh, I, I, know, I know why. Uh, just you wonder, what in the world are you going to do with this? And so I thought, well, it's after Easter. I might as well give it a whirl and see what, what we can think about here. So we did some reading, obviously, and some work more work than probably had done before, but just to begin to think about this passage, because the question is, as is the question in every text that we've been picking up in the book of Acts, uh, as we've been working our way through it, is how does this fit? And why this? Paul limited, I mean, Luke had a limited amount of writing uh, material, and so why is it that he, he used space to put this in there? And why did he take up the time for that? Because we know the overall theme of Luke as he writes for us this book of Acts is to to communicate to us what Jesus was continuing to do and to teach. Uh, He had written his first volume to tell us what Jesus had begun to do and teach and and to to authenticate it, to say this is really true, the the things you have been hearing. He's writing to this man named Theophilus. uh, And and he's saying the things that you've you've heard are really true. And so I've done the research and and, and I've worked this through. And and so here's what he began to do and teach. So he takes us up through the resurrection of Jesus. And then he begins in volume two for him, which is the book of Acts. And and he begins then to talk about Jesus uh, as he meets with his disciples after the resurrection. And he shows us the ascension, which he'd given us a peek of in his gospel, in the gospel of Luke. Uh, And then he begins to see what is continuing now that Jesus has been exalted, that he's ruling and reigning on high. Uh, And and he, he begins, you remember, setting this out by giving us this sense that what we're going to see as he writes in the book of Acts is witnesses of Jesus. Because Jesus meets with his disciples and he says that there's a way to Jerusalem. 
until the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they will receive power so that they may be his witnesses, the witnesses of Jesus, to testify to the truth of Jesus uh, in Jerusalem, that is where they were, in Judea, a little bit away, Samaria, some ways farther as well, not only geographically but culturally, and then to the ends of the earth. And so he said, this is, this is what's going to happen. So we anticipate that. We anticipate seeing witnesses of Jesus, and, and indeed we do. We see witnesses of Jesus, not evangelists per se. If you read through the New Testament, we read that certain ones are called evangelists. But, but those are, that's a specific thing, but these are witnesses. Do they evangelize? Yes, but it's bigger than that. It's their whole identity, it's their whole life to be witnesses of Jesus. Interestingly, the Greek word for witness is the word from which we get our English word martyr. Because you're to witness to such a degree that you would die for this. In fact, your whole life is giving over, given over to the testimony of the truth of this. You die to the old, live to the new, that is you live unto Christ. And your whole life now is a testimony that Jesus has come, that he's died, that he's risen, that he's ascended, that his spirit has come upon you, and thus your whole life, our whole lives are to give testimony to that, whether it's in dramatic ways of standing before a large group of people and speaking this truth, or whether it's in more mundane ways of just sort of going shopping and, and being a Christian in the midst of that, and how we spend our money and how we behave in the store and all of that. But, but, but it's, it's, it's that, that we're to be witnesses of Jesus, So we expect to see that, and indeed we do. And what we're realizing as we're working through this book of Acts is it's not so much about technique. This isn't about, about how we do it per se. There isn't three steps to be a better witness for Jesus in here necessarily. We can discern some of that. We get the message that, that is the testimony of Jesus as we read through the book of Acts. We understand it. It is about Jesus. It is about the incarnation. It is about his life. It is about his death. It is about his resurrection. That's the guts of it, of course. So we read about that, but it isn't a how-to. In fact, I think more than anything, it's a confidence builder. It's, it's this thing that we read to say, yes, this is true of us, and God is actually doing this even through us that even with all the obstacles that we could foresee, still will be his witnesses. Still God will see to it. Still God will, will work in such a way, because Jesus is ruling and reigning, that God will work in such a way is that we will testify of him, that the gospel will be spread, that the church will be built, that the kingdom of God will be manifested. And so we read the book of Acts with this sense of, yes, Nothing really can thwart the will of God. Nothing can really stop this from happening, regardless of what it may be. It could well be the, the I'm going to take this off because I think my jacket's, is that what's making that funny noise that I'm hearing? Plus, I don't want it on anyway. Uh, that gives me a great excuse. I just heard something rubbing. and Who knows? could just be my bones as I'm getting old. But, um, but nothing can stop it, you see. In the very beginning, we, we see this word and we wonder, why aren't they going out and why aren't they evangelizing? I mean, there's this certain inertia, but yet there's this also probably wondering of how is this going to take place? Here we are in Jerusalem, and, a good, and again, transportation isn't, wasn't like it is today. It wasn't like you just get in your car and go to the next community or send an email or what, any of that. How do we get this gospel out? And even to have a mindset to do that. You know, the cultural differences were huge, way bigger even than they are today. When there was genuine hatred of one culture to the next, of the Jew and the Gentile, and all of that that had to be overcome. And it had to be overcome even by a vision, you remember, in Acts chapter 10 to Peter. But the good news about that is that it did happen, that it did take place, that God was able to change the minds of people and get them from one place to another. And it took perhaps a vision, it took persecution even to move them out from Jerusalem. And there were all kinds of internal problems as well. There was Ananias and Sapphira, these people who lied to the church and lied to the Holy Spirit. And God dealt with that. That didn't stop, that, 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 that lack of sincerity, lack of genuineness, lack of honesty that, that had crept into the church through Ananias and Sapphira and still exists. God deals with that. We know that, that God will overcome that. That won't thwart the work of God, even lying church members. 
right? Even deceptive church members. That's not going to stop it. And so as we read in the newspapers about all kinds of things that happen in the life of the church, that's not going to stop witnesses testifying of the truth of Christ. It shouldn't happen. We don't, we don't like it. We, we don't encourage it. We don't reinforce it. But, but even if it happens, it's not going to stop it. The church will go on. The gospel will be spread. The church will be built. The kingdom of God will be manifested uh, on the face of the earth uh, through, his, through his people. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was a problem with widows, you remember, in Acts chapter 6. Um, um, they weren't being fed, some said. They weren't being fed well or as well as others. Whether that was, was a lack of caring in the context of the life of the church or whether that was complaining people in the life of the church, still neither would thwart. Uh, the purpose of God because deacons came and the wisdom of God was given and the situation was dealt with. There was persecution. Uh, Stephen was killed, but still that didn't stop. In fact, that was the very fuel for the life of the church. There was disagreement about vision between Barnabas and Paul as to whom they should take on particular mission and all of that. That didn't stop. That didn't thwart it. Even disagreement among these great men, Paul and Barnabas, and the life of the church. It, it didn't thwart the church again. When, when Paul was persecuted, when he found himself going into places and being rejected, still the gospel would continue. It didn't stop when, when Paul didn't know quite what to do. He thought he was to, supposed to go and revisit some churches that he had planted, you remember. But that wasn't the plan of God. The plan of God was that he was to go to Macedonia. And he didn't get that. He didn't on his own figure that out. And so a vision came to him and said, don't do this. Come to Macedonia. So he did. See, as we read this, we realize nothing thwarts the will of God. And that's to give us courage even as we move on. The danger for us always is that we forget about that. And we begin to put our goals and our objectives in place of that which is God. And rather than seeing ourselves as witnesses, as that's our identity... We, we try to gain for ourselves a measure of financial security so we can be comfortable. Or we try to have the goal of convenience and, and, and so that our lives won't be disrupted by, by anything or anybody. But, but you see, that's not God's goal for us. His goal for us is that we testify of him and we witness of him. And that's what I hope, that's why I picked up the book of Acts a year ago, January, to begin to make certain that we understand that that is our identity. And so God puts us in various situations, sometimes uh, by the means of our own choosing, sometimes not, but always to be his witnesses. Now, what he's promised to Paul is that he's going to get to Rome. And Paul's going to get to Rome, and in getting to Rome, he's going to testify of him. You remember all the way back in chapter 23, in verse 11, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me uh, in Rome. And so there's some strange and mysterious providence going on here. It's, Paul uh, moves, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but, but Paul's moving to, to getting to Rome, and he has a shipwreck, at the end of that shipwreck, uh, he finds himself now coming uh, on this place called Malta, which interestingly and appropriately means refuge. And so he comes to this island, of this place of Malta. And, um, and, and if I didn't know better, I would say, and as luck would have it, you know, it starts to rain and it gets cold. And I'm thinking, oh, come on, give him a break. Give him a sunny day. I mean, he's been two weeks. He's been months on the sea, but he's been two weeks in a hurricane, been shipwrecked. Uh, who knows? Think, think of 276 men in a shipwreck. They may not even be clothed by the time they get to this place called Malta. I mean, you know, that's, that's the situation they're in. They're beaten and bruised and battered. And even though God said no one's going to die, he didn't say nobody's going to get beaten and bruised and battered. They didn't, they didn't sort of surf in, you know, uh, on, on, on this deal. They, 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 they were beaten up as they came in. And so now they're on this, this, this island. It begins to rain. It gets very cold. The islanders, the natives there, are quite nice to them. They build a bonfire for them. But again, think of all of these 276 men a pretty big bonfire to get everybody warm. Paul, amazingly, 
even though he's kind of been their leader, he's kind of been the one who's been telling them about, about uh, that they're going to be saved and getting these messages from God and, and enabling them to, 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 to be safe, is gathering sticks for the fire. You'd think somebody else would do that, but Paul does that, and you think, that's pretty noble. And then he, he, he throws his sticks into the fire, and must be as he gets closer to the fire, the warmth of the fire sort of awakens this viper that's hidden in the sticks that he obviously doesn't see when he picks them up or he wouldn't have picked it up. And he throws these sticks into the fire and he's bitten by this poisonous snake. And you think, how can this guy catch a break? I mean, after all of this. And he shakes it off into the fire. The the natives, the islanders, the, the people from that vicinity, look at him and say, ah, he's a murderer. Justice, which is capitalized, at least in my version of the Bible, which should be capitalized because it's really a proper name of a goddess. Justice has finally caught up with him, in a sense. Um, the, the, tried to get him on the sea, tried to get him when, when, the, when the ship was, was, was shipwrecked. That's when he should have died. But he survived that somehow. But, but now justice has caught up to him. And because it's a viper and because it's, it's deadly, then it must be that he's a murderer. And so they wait and they watch for Paul to die. Could have been what the uh, old literature refers to as a two-step viper, which means after two steps, you fall over dead. And it must have been something like that because they expected you get this sense pretty quickly for Paul to die, and he didn't. And then when he didn't die, and he had escaped the shipwreck, and he had escaped this, they think this is the, this is the strongest justice we have, therefore he must be a god. He must be greater than justice. He must be greater than this goddess justice, therefore uh, he's able uh, to live. Now, I want us to consider responses, the various responses, the responses response Paul made to this. We don't have a lot about it, but I think we can think it through. And the responses of these ones who think Paul is first going to die and then uh, is a god. Think through these responses to this particular incident. But before I get to those two, just to give you some historical background in terms of theological understanding, there is a response that's, that's, a, that's a, a rather last couple of, last century response to readers of this passage. And it goes something like this, that Luke is trying to spice up the story. Luke is trying to, to add to the, to the mystique of, of Paul so that more people will become Christians, more people will enter into this fold. And so he includes this fanciful story about Paul being bit by a snake and not dying. Um, Obviously, I say obviously for those who know me and know our church, obviously that isn't the point that we would agree with um, for a number of reasons. First, just the veracity of Scripture itself. But secondly, as Luke comes to tell this story, he doesn't need this. This is the least fanciful thing that he's written about. The most fanciful thing, if you want to put it that way, that he's written about, the most amazing thing that he's written about is the fact that this man Jesus, who was crucified at the end of his last volume, is still alive. Now, that's amazing. I and mean, once you do that, why do you need anything else? I mean, why do you need to add a little snake bite thing? Uh, once you buy into the fact that Jesus was crucified and really dead and then risen from the dead... You don't have to lie after that. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's it at that point. If, if, you, know, if you buy that, if, if that makes sense to you, if you put that in, then a little snake bite's not a big deal. So you must have another point here. And some have argued that since there are no snakes on Malta, poisonous snakes in Malta today, that, that this really wasn't a poisonous snake. But, but that's ridiculous, of course, because we know that there are, there are certain creatures that it can be alive in, in one millennia and not in another. That was 2,000 years ago. So just because they don't exist today there, or we haven't found any there, doesn't mean they didn't exist 2,000 years ago. In other words, to say that it simply wasn't a poisonous snake, that, that everybody was mistaken. Paul just got bit by a snake that looked like a poisonous snake. But then that's silly because Luke is a physician and these natives to that area, if we simply don't want to be utterly arrogant, we would assume they know one snake from another. 
and they expected him to die. So again, it simply we take it simply as true as we move through it. But it's interesting their reaction, isn't it? It's interesting their reaction that, that they would say that he must have done something horribly wrong to be in the circumstance where he'd get bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, that by all means should kill him. And then when he doesn't die, to think there must be something unique about him that makes him a god or favored by the gods. Now we look at that and it sounds rather superstitious, but really is it? Isn't that exactly the way we process? At least at times. When bad things happen to you, when bad things happen to people, what often comes to mind? What have I done? I mean, last night, as North Carolina is coming back, I'm thinking, what did I do today that was this bad, you know? There are going to be people at church today who think by coming, because we're in the finals on Monday, happens finals, it's what I call the finals week phenomenon too with students, bless them, uh, I better go to church because if I go to church, then something good is going to happen to me. Then we think that way. Now, there's something in us that tells us this sense of justice that, that's, that's not really all that wrong. It's silly about the basketball games and all that. But we do know that there are consequences to sin. There is this sense of justice, even in a pagan community, a non-believing community, if you will, like the people in Malta. They, they have this sense of justice. and It's perverted. They have the goddess justice and all that. But, but there is still this innate sense of justice in human beings, the common grace of God that, that enables people to see this kind of thing that there is justice, that if we do wrong things, then, then there is punishment for that. That's rather innate. And, and civilizations and societies and people have tried to run from that and make up for that and pretend that didn't exist. But it simply does. It's simply in us. We simply know when something bad happens, then, then, then there's a consequence to that in some sense of punishment, you see. And for people who want to be theoretical about it, you can be theoretical about it and say, oh, we shouldn't behave that way, we shouldn't think that way. But the truth is, when someone does something bad to you and something harmful to you or your family, you know that there's a sense, this sense of justice that something ought to be done here. Payment must be made. And so we know, as believers in Christ, as people who read the Bible, we know that, that sin brings misery, sin brings consequences, Sin ultimately brings the wrath of God. And even as we read in Romans chapter 1, we read that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness, even now in various kinds of ways. We don't always see it. It's not always one-to-one. We don't always see it. But in that passage in Romans 1, we read that God gives people over to their depravity. Now, that's wrath. But it may not look like wrath because he may give them over to various pleasures that they may have. And for a season, it may appear as if they enjoy that. But all in all, that's taking them further and further away from God and knowing him and thus ultimately lead to their, lead to their destruction. So we know that. Um, even as we read through the scripture. Uh, we see in various incidences that certain maladies come upon people for certain activities. For instance, uh, back in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, we read of Moses' sister named Miriam. Miriam criticizes Moses, really criticizes God for choosing Moses to be their leader, and she's struck with leprosy. You go, woohoo, okay. You read Deuteronomy chapter 28, which talks about the blessings and curses from the covenant. And you read the curses of the covenant that come all the way from, from famine to being defeated by your enemies and everything in between for breaking the covenant of God. And in that covenant community in ancient Israel, those things happened and they, they came about uh, because of breaking, breaking the covenant. We read in Psalm 32, David's pain as he, as he speaks of it. David's pain because of unconfessed sin. He speaks of, of, of real pain. Uh, and I've heard physicians uh, speak of that passage of Scripture, uh, talking about the kinds of pain that David is, is experiencing, real physical pain, on the, because of unconfessed sin. We read in Luke chapter 1, the father of John the Baptist, who doesn't believe that his wife's really going to have this child, uh, and he's smitten uh, with the inability to speak. 
Uh, we read in John chapter 5 where Jesus comes upon a man who has been sick for 38 years. And Jesus heals him and he says, don't sin anymore lest something worse befalls you. We get that sense from that passage. And so, so there's all these kinds of little hints along the way that yes, there is something to the sense of justice we don't always see it, obviously. Nor would we conclude that, 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 um, that every time something bad happens to someone, it's the result of their particular sin. We're not able to make those connections one-to-one. In fact, the scripture even speaks of that in a sense that suffering happens. We read about Christians from the Apostle Peter. He says, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. Don't be surprised. Even... He says, you could even be, you could even suffer for doing good. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. That is, blessed are you when you're reviled and you're speaking ill of because of the gospel. And so we see that you can be persecuted even in the context of doing good. So we we can't always say, oh, bad thing happened. Oh, I must have done something. Somebody must have done something wrong here. And now they're being punished for it. But but we see, there's a sense in us that goes, okay, that isn't utterly absurd. But there's a great situation, you remember, in John in chapter 9. You can turn there quickly, I won't read much of it. But it's very instructive, I think. I'll get us back to Acts in a minute. But John chapter 9, verse 1. As he and the he there is uh, Jesus As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And again, we we read that in the same sense that we hear these people in Acts 28. And we think, why would they ask this? But, But then we know. It's funny, they say, who sinned this man because he was blind from birth? But if you have in your head this idea that bad things happen because of a particular sin in a particular person, that's just the logic of their thinking. Well, he must have done something before he was born to be in this situation, or his parents, and thus their being, in some sense, um, punished. And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some things happen that aren't that do not bear relationship to a particular sin or a particular person's sin. Now Jesus probably could have taken a moment here to explain the mysteries of the presence of evil and the, and the, and the presence of sin in the world, but he didn't. I suspect he didn't because we wouldn't have understood it really. That's something in the in the mind of God as to why. But Jesus points to the purpose of it. Jesus points and he says, there is something very significant here. The very purpose that God's glory would be manifested, that the works of God would be manifested through this. We see it in the life of Job, obviously. We don't have any indication at all that Job did anything that was sufficiently bad to require what happened to him. We know the story of Job. We know the fact that it was Satan who went into the courts of God and in a sense negotiated for Job. And God put boundaries, but yet Job suffered. The reason Job suffered was that God would be glorified and he ultimately was in the life of Job because Job ended up worshiping God at the end because he received from God a revelation about who God was and about who Job was And Job bowed before him at the end, and God was glorified. So in the suffering of Job, Satan was defeated. There's a picture of Jesus and all that. We won't go there at the moment. And again, Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer. You can even suffer for doing good. And we also know that just because something good comes to a person doesn't mean that they've done something good to deserve that. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I've looked around, and here's what I've observed. The ungodly are rich and happy. Us godly ones are poor and miserable. (laughs) What's with that? So, good things happening 
we can't always say, well, it's just because we've done something good here. And Jesus says, here's this person who was born blind. Uh, and the reason for it has nothing to do really with his sin or his parents' sin. It has something to do with sin in general, but it doesn't have anything particularly to do with their sin. But so that God would be glorified, obviously, ultimately, in the healing of this. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that there's a sense in which that expression, this exists for God's glory, or this exists so that God's work might be shown, is to satisfy us. In other words, if you ask the question, was it worth, it's a very hard statement, so just listen, was it worth all the years of that man's blindness before he was healed, was it worth it? The answer that Jesus would give is yes. Simply on the basis that God's purpose in that man's blindness was for God's glory to be revealed. Now, every day of that blindness was blindness. It was real in that man's life. So let that sink in. Let the toughness of that statement sink in. What we need to be satisfied with is the fact that through it, God is glorified. That can only be true if what? If our passion isn't for sight, but if our passion is for the glory of God. If our passion isn't for ease, but our passion is for the glory of God. You see? Again, I, trust me, I don't want to live that either, okay? Necessarily. But, but that's where our passion needs to be. And if our passion's there, that's why when these difficulties come and they distress us, which they do. Uh, my little grandson's been the last night and a half, night in the hospital with croup. And I'm thinking, the worst, because I'm a grandpa and I'm a human being and I'm me, all right? And I'm thinking, what would satisfy worst case scenario? That God is glorified. That must satisfy. See, that's why I have to tune my heart, as the hymn writer says, to tune my heart in that direction. Okay. Now, coming back. As we think about this, then we, we realize that it's that God has a purpose. God had a purpose for this snake bite, even in the life of Paul. Uh, and and it isn't so odd for us to, 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 to have this story, therefore, to realize, okay, it's dramatic, but, Paul, but God has this reason. And, and, and I think the reason is to give us confidence that the will of God is never going to be thwarted, not even by a snake bite, not by a shipwreck, not by a snake bite, not by anything. And if what we're after is the, the, the will of God, the glory of God, then we shouldn't worry about these things. Because what did Paul think about it? Now, we really don't know. Luke doesn't give us great detail about what Paul was thinking in the midst of this. All we know is he got bit by the snake and he shook it off. Now, we don't know if that was a violent shake off. We don't know if that was a little whatever. We don't, we don't know what Paul's expression was in the midst of that. But I want to speculate this, and so I want to put that in capital letters. I want to speculate this. That if you would have gone up to Paul after he got bit by the snake and said, are you going to live, he would have said yes. And if you would have said, well, why do you think you're going to live? He would have said, I think, because I'm not to Rome yet. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? And he would have said, because the promise of God is that I'm going to testify about him in Rome. And I'm not thinking that I'm going to testify by my death. I'm thinking, I'm, I, you know, every indication I have that God has ever led me about is that I'm going to get to Rome and I'm going to talk about him there like I've talked about him other places. And I'm not there yet, so I'm not going to die. The snake bite isn't going to deter me. And if we could back up all the way in the book of Acts and go to, to uh, Stephen and say, Stephen, do you think your death is going to deter the growth of the church? He'd say, oh, no. 
Because God had said we're going to be his witnesses. Do you think this persecution is going to deter the work of the church? No. Why? Because God had said we're going to be his witnesses. Do you think that the, 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 the lying of Ananias and Sapphira is going to deter the work of the church? No, 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 no. Because why? Because we're going to be his witnesses. Nothing will thwart the will of God. Whether it's internal, whether it's external, whether it comes from outside, from within, whether it's a snake bite, whether it's a shipwreck, no matter what, it's not going to deter any of this. Think of Abraham for a minute. God comes to Abraham, this old man, essentially at that point in time, and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. He has no children. God reiterates that promise, and, and Abraham begins to talk to God and say, you know, God, I, uh, I don't have any children, and you've made these promises to me. And God says, you'll have a child. A child comes named Isaac. And the very next chapter, if you will, some years, but the very next chapter from Genesis 21 to Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. What is Abraham to think? He has these promises of God that he's going to be the father of many nations. His heir, his only heir, the, the one through whom all of this is going to come, he's now said to slay. What, to slay, what in the world could, could Abraham be thinking at that time? I think on the way up to the mountain for him to kill his son, if you would have said to Abraham, is your son coming back with you? He would say, why, of course. In fact, as you read through the Genesis passage, you find that Abraham says to the people that he leaves at the base of the mountain, my son and I are going to go up to make sacrifice and we will return. In fact, the author of Hebrews lays it out like this, verse 17 in Hebrews 11, he writes, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who had, he, who, and he who had received the promises was in fact the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The promises of God can never be thwarted. And sometimes we have to think really kind of funny things. But those funny things come true. <laughs> Paul didn't die from this snake bite, which he should have. Now, of course, that's not the normal procedure, by the way, just so you know. We're not snake handlers. Uh, we, uh, if you get bit by a snake, call 911, okay? Please do that. Don't call me. <laughs> Don't call me and tell me you're going to live because I'm going to tell you you're probably going to die. Uh, we don't have any great promises that every, the Christians simply don't die this way. You know, this is one way you can... I remember as a kid just praying I'd get leprosy because I knew God could heal that. I wasn't sure about the flu, but I knew leprosy got healed all the time. But, uh, you know, this isn't the one thing that, 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 that Christians don't die from, snake bites. So that's not the point. The point at that particular moment in time, he wasn't going to die because... He wasn't in Rome. And that was the very promise of God. Now, God has made promises to us. They will all come true. He's made promises to us, for instance. And these are amazing kinds of promises that we have to cling to in the midst of sometimes what looks to the contrary. I mean, Paul had been promised he was going to Rome... And he, and, he, and he advises the ship uh, uh, people not to sail, and they do. And they get into a shipwreck, and Paul clings to the promise of God that he's going to Rome. And God tells him, you'll all be saved, of course, because you're going to Rome. In fact, Paul had come to Jerusalem earlier because, because, because he desired to go to Rome and because he felt the very call of God to go to Rome. And he came to Jerusalem, you remember, to bring unity in the church. And he ends up getting arrested there, which just seems like a bad thing. He's like going to thwart the will of God. How's he ever going to make it uh, to Rome if he's arrested here and they begin to beat him? Well, the Roman authorities, you remember, intervened and, and they pull Paul out and they arrest him. They, they keep him away from the Jewish authorities that are trying to kill Paul. Now, interestingly enough, as you remember, they, they do it because they've mistaken the identity of Paul. They think he's a person who started a revolt sometime before. And so they arrest him for that. But now they have him in custody, protective custody. So he's safe, at least for the time. But then he makes another pitch before the Jewish council. And, and they say he should die. 
And so the, the Roman authority says, well, let's question him and flog him, meaning we'll question him if he doesn't tell us what we want to hear, we'll beat him even more. But then Paul says, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Woo-hoo, lucky for him. And they say, we can't beat him. So he gives them one more try in front of the Sanhedrin, and they respond violently. And so then Paul's put into protective custody again, rearrested by the Romans. Doesn't seem good for Paul. Then a plot comes against him. Uh, a plot comes where Jewish men say that they're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Just so happens that Paul's nephew overhears about this plot, comes and tells Paul. Paul tells the officer, who then tells the commander that these people are going to kill Paul. He knows that Paul's a Roman citizen. He doesn't want a Roman citizen killed on his watch. And so he organizes 476 soldier people to escort Paul out of there and keep him safe. And he gives Paul a horse to ride on to boot, unknown for prisoners to be treated so well. He gets to Caesarea, and here a man by the name of Felix is going to hear his case. Well, Felix uh, uh, really... uh, listens to Paul, but but doesn't really respond well, keeps him in prison for two years. Seems bad. But then, amazingly, he's relieved of his post. A guy by the name of Festus comes in. Festus comes in, he wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem, which would not be good. But then, Paul says, by the way, I appeal to Caesar, meaning you have to send me to Rome. So Festus says, okay, brings him before King Agrippa, And King Agrippa says, I would release him, which we think would be good, but would really be bad. Because since he doesn't release him, he sends him to Rome. But then the shipwreck, Paul lives through that. The snake bite, no big deal. God prepares us. You might think a snake bite would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Not after you've been through what Paul has been through. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I've learned, very important word, I've learned to be content in every situation. Did he start out content in every situation? No. But after you've been through what Paul had been through, a snake bite, just a snake bite. God had prepared him for because he was so content in the promises of God that the will of God can't be thwarted. And God has said to us that he's going to conform us to the image of Christ. And you look at your life and you know what you've thought and you've heard what you've said and you've thought, that's impossible. It isn't. If you belong to him, it's a dangerous sentence I'm going to say for a pastor of a church to say belong to Christ, you can't thwart that. He won't let you. He is with you. It doesn't mean what we do and say doesn't matter. It matters. It matters supremely now because of the fact that God is involved in our lives. But the assurance that we have is we can't even thwart it. That's the great meaning of that little phrase, that it was while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, our sin didn't stop it. Our sin and God's love for us in the midst of it moved him. You see, you and I, again, this is dangerous because I like to ask you to do things and I like to have leverage, but I have none. (laughs) I'll admit that now. We can't thwart that. I can't thwart it, you can't thwart it, our sin can't thwart it. Because God is bigger than even that. Because it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this 
in remembrance of me. As often as you eat of this bread, the apostle says, and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we make this proclamation to us, to God, to angels and demons who are looking in. We believe that God's will can never be thwarted. We believe that God's plan for us will be achieved, that he will conform us to the image of Christ and that we will be his witnesses. That is our identity. And he'll work, he'll put us in various situations, sometimes by our choice, sometimes not. Sometimes in ways that we think we've determined to get there and sometimes ways that we find ourselves there that we never would have chosen. But we know when we get there that his purpose for us in being there is to testify of him and to show his goodness, to show his glory. Nothing can stop that because Jesus has come. Nothing can stop that because Jesus has died. Nothing can stop that because Jesus has risen. Nothing can stop that because Jesus has ascended. Nothing can stop that because His Holy Spirit has come to us and moved in us and worked in us and given us new life and drawn us to Him and enabled us to become His and to believe. We can trust that. The final word is simply this. It's a great biblical expression. I stole it right out of the Bible. Be of good cheer. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me and for us. God, you would grant to us assurance, not so that we can be lazy, but assurance so that we can have confidence. Assurance not that we can sort of lay down, but confidence so we can get up that we can walk with you. To know that you're here and you're with us and you're powerful and you're moving us and you're going to take us to that place where we need to be and that can't be thwarted. Fortunately, not by us, not by anyone else, not by Satan himself. Christ has come. He's crushed the head of the serpent. He's changed our hearts. It's cleansed us. It's caused us to become yours. So I pray we can walk in that, really walk in that. Lord Jesus, meet us around this table. Grant us deep and genuine confidence, faith. Meet us here. Bless us in the richest and deepest sense of that word. Enable us to walk with you. May our witness be known that we may testify clearly of who you are and what you've done and what you're doing. The gospel may spread, the church may be built, that your kingdom would be manifested. Take this bread, this juice. Lord Jesus, use it in such a way that we know that you're here and that we have received from you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy and those who receive and depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And we desire, therefore, to walk with him, to walk in such a way that trusts and is confident that God is with us. That's true for you. Let me ask you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat it, and just let ring in your head be of good cheer. God's will cannot be thwarted. Please come. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray you would grant to us great assurance even now that all that you've promised to us, that you will conform us to the image of Christ, that we will be your witnesses, that the gospel will spread, that the church will be built, that your kingdom will be manifested. Father, that we will reach that day of promise where we'll see Jesus and we'll be glorified along with him 
And there will be no more tears and no more crying, no more dying, no more poverty, no more injustice. The Father will live as one people in you, under you, for all eternity. The grant us assurance that nothing can thwart that for Jesus has come and Jesus has lived and Jesus has died and Jesus has risen and Jesus is exalted and rules and reigns and we have his spirit. So, Father, I pray you would grant that to us. Father, give us courage to speak, to, to speak of Christ, to trust him. Father, especially now even those who we have called out special in our church to, to go for Chase and Jillian Pettis, Father, as they prepare to return to Asia for Kelly and Marietta Liebengood in seminary, Father, I pray, pray your blessing upon Kelly as he works on his dissertation. Grant them grace to trust you, Father. Provide for their material needs. For Karen Pankratz, Father, as she prays through her next step with Navigators, Father, that you would be with her and lead her, guide her. For those who are in the difficulties of life, we pray Father, we grant, pray that you would grant health for us, uh, for others, for Amy Tharp's mom. Father, we pray for her, that you would grant grace to her, even in this time for Amy, as she ministers to her, and even uh, for Chris as he's, as he's away in the military. Father, be with him. For their family, Father, bless them. For others who are suffering in various and sundry ways. Father, we pray, too, that you would use all that we give. Thank you that you've made us to be a giving congregation because we know Christ, and I pray that we continue to give so that our church can witness, uh, witness of the truth of Christ. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to our benediction is uh, this great doxology to sing together this praise of God. Please receive this. As God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from the blessings flow.